As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Yo, technology. What is it all about? Welcome to another edition of Danny in the Valley. Thank you for tuning in and loading down or downloading. Um, It's a special one this week. I'm actually not in the Valley. I'm in London on a few work things, so I've taken the opportunity to speak to a few of the big wigs out on these shores. Uh, And to that end, this week, our very special guest is none other than Martha Lane Fox. Martha, as many of you know, founded LastMinute.com back in the late 1990s. It was one of the great emblematic companies of the first dot-com boom. Uh, It scaled massive heights, plumbed very low depths, and somehow has managed to stay alive some 20 years on, even if in a much more low-profile form. Um, So we talk about loads of stuff, including Twitter, where she sits on the board of directors. It was obviously a very big week for Twitter because... Along with Facebook and Google, it was hauled before Congress to testify about how Russia uses the platform to wage its global disinformation campaigns. It's all very dramatic. And in a Danny in the Valley first, we talk about Parliament with a real live Lord. She was appointed to the House of Lords four years ago. So we talk about that. We talk about finding success at a very young age, suffering through personal tragedy and coming out the other side. And of course... We talk about what's wrong with the internet and how she's trying to fix it. And just a quick heads up, um, you're going to hear a bit of an echo throughout the conversation. Hopefully it's not too much of a bother, uh, but I do apologize for that. It was just, um, we met to do the podcast at the offices of Dot Everyone, which is the organization Martha now runs and the only room available uh, in Somerset House, the old building on the Thames. At very high ceilings, it's very echoey, so it's kind of the best we could do. So hopefully it's not too much of a nuisance, but just wanted to give you a fair warning before. Anyhow, without further ado, here is Martha. Baroness Lane Fox. Thank you. To give me my full title, actually, Lane Fox is Soho. Danny, I don't want to call you on the proper correct nomenclature. (laughs) Thank you for being here. Not at all, my pleasure. So there's lots we can cover, but I thought, given this week is fairly momentous in America, with Facebook, Google, Twitter, where you are on the board, are testifying in D.C. today. Do you have any sense of why it seems so hard for the tech companies to control these platforms that they have created it's complicated, isn't it? And I think that is obviously the million-dollar question. I'd say two things. I firstly think you have to be very detailed and specific when talking about these things. You know, the world of Facebook is a very different world to the world of Google, which is, again, very different to the world of Twitter, both in scale, product, and in user motivation, if you like. And I think that there's a sort of laziness or a shorthand in grouping them all together. And, of course, there are common themes. They're all suffering from 
problems of misinformation, all the stuff that you're referring to, but I think the solutions on each are different and I think the way they're approaching them are different. And I think the second thing I'd say is I don't believe anybody invented any of these things for this to be a byproduct of it, clearly. And I think sometimes it's quite easy from the outside to think, oh, these bloody companies, you know, they're blah, all this stuff happening. Well, you and I know because we know enough about technology that there can be very surprising ripple effects from what you create. And all of these businesses are still very, very new less than 10 years old in some cases and some very 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 startling to remember that isn't it so i'm not apologizing for them but i think it is important to keep putting them in that context and also to appreciate that technology is pretty good but it's not sometimes as good as we sometimes imagine it might be from the outside you know the robots aren't about to take our jobs ai is not some singularity that we are all about to enter And if I think about what I've experienced from Twitter in terms of our algorithms and some of the ways we're trying to find bots, shut down accounts, deal with this stuff, we are really racing to keep ahead with the capacity of technology. And and this is, you know, some of the best programmers in the world and the best place in the world. So I think it is important to recognize that this is very new, very complicated, and technology isn't able just to suddenly be turned on and sort out some of these problems, especially when you're faced with forces of quite significant resources and sometimes malcontent that is determined to counter whatever solutions are offered. But I guess that's one of the interesting aspects, I think, is that tech markets itself, especially the big tech guys, market themselves at this kind of kind of societal panacea for all these problems. And then they run into the real world and realize, well, to your point, there's actually a lot of bad actors who can really use this stuff pretty easily for really bad things. So it does seem like there is a, partly it's a problem of their own making. Yes, I agree. And I think the hubris in some of the rhetoric that comes from the biggest tech companies is astonishing. You know, it's quite astonishing. And that's why I've always really loved the startup world, where you have that kind of uh, possibility and you have those big dreams, but you have an absolute understanding that you are a million, billion miles away from it. You know, sometimes to read Mark Zuckerberg's postings or videos, you think, Jesus Christ, you aren't actually Jesus Christ. (laughs) And I... I don't know him, and I don't say it with any criticism particularly, but I think that there is... There's a long way to fall when you set yourself up as being able to right the world's ills. And it's very important to look at the reality of what's happening on your platforms as opposed to what you hope in your head might be true. Why did you join the Twitter board? I'm a super user. Uh, I love it. So as just on a personal level, it felt like a real privilege to go and be part of something that you really enjoy as a product. But then obviously for someone like me who's worked in technology my whole working life, started in... 94, 95, when the internet was but a twinkle in the eye of the British public, then went on to launch my own dot-com business with Brent in 97, 98. I've always been on the kind of peripheries of Silicon Valley. It's influenced how we've thought. We've obviously had to have relationships with those companies, but I haven't had the opportunity to work in the heart of it. So it was a total no-brainer when I was given the opportunity. Do you think it's fixable? Of course. Twitter has an unbelievably strong powerful relationship with the people that use it. I think if you can keep nailing that user need and work out how people are using it and where it can be valuable in their lives, then you are always going to be successful as a business. And for me personally, to have a kind of deep social purpose alongside that is very compelling as well. You know, Twitter is not just about selling advertising and revenue model, it is also about keeping people abreast of the important events happening in their lives and the wider world at large. And those two things are are very 
intoxicating combination. I'll give you a silly-ish example. <laughs> I'm in the British Parliament, and so I spend some time in the ridiculous building that we're quite near to from here. Which and is my, in need of repairs, I which believe. Which is completely collapsing. In my <laughs> humble opinion, we should just shut it down, make it a museum, and build a new parliament. That's obviously not a very popular view. But I have an office, which I share with a really fabulous baroness, at the very far end of the building, when a madman attacked Parliament sometime earlier this year and stabbed a policeman, unfortunately, and it was a horrible incident. The building went into lockdown immediately because of the systems in the House of Commons and the House of Lords being so rubbish and there's no common, you know, you can't really make an announcement through this loudspeaker system. I was on Twitter to find out what was happening at the other end of the building because all MPs are on Twitter, they're all tweeting about what's happening, security services, all that stuff, were using Twitter as the platform to communicate with us and I thought that was kind of ironic. I could hear police helicopters whirring around outside, I could see policemen running around outside the building. Could I get any information? No, except from Twitter. So of course it's fixable, it's well on the way to being fixed and I think that there is so much power that is driven by the product, that is what will make it a very successful. Well, that's why I think it's, it's an amazing news feed, which is why I find it so extraordinary they have such a hard time making money from it. People spend a lot of time on it, but it's still deeply loss-making. It's, well, deeply, I'd question. But I, you know, <laughs> watch this space. I think it's, it has increasingly built the dynamics to make a successful business alongside a successful platform and I have absolutely no doubt that Twitter will survive and thrive in the future. With a part-time CEO? Well anyone that knows Jack knows he's not part-time. Let's go backwards. Yes. In our time machine back to mid-late 90s. 20 years ago. I know I was reading your Wikipedia page. I was 104. (laughs) I was reading your Wikipedia page. Uh, before we sat down here, and I saw that one of Being the robust and rigorous journalist that you are. Exactly. (laughs) Going straight to the most reliable source. (laughs) So you graduated Oxford, and then you started... You were a consultant, and one of your first projects was for BT, and it was... The project was, what What, is the internet? Yep. Our company was a tiny startup consultancy. It came out of two big consultancies, but focused entirely on media and telecoms. And at that time, the main issue was, what is this shifting landscape of the internet going to do to our telecoms business or our media business? And my first project was for BT, and that was just such an incredible introduction. I was an ancient and modern historian from Oxford. Wow, to get the opportunity for the you know, biggest provider, effectively, of all kinds of telecom services in the UK, if not Europe at that point, and learn about the internet and explain it to them. Some people would argue that you could still do that project for them now, but that would be, <laughs> that would be very cruel. I wouldn't possibly be able to say that. What was the internet then? <laughs> do you know what? I, I'll never forget my boss, who's a very funny guy called Peter Reed, who writing a page that said on it, nobody knows anything. And this was basically the kickoff to his slide presentation, for which clients often paid hundreds of thousands of pounds. They lapped it up. He would manage to riff on this theme of nobody knows anything for hours. So I think that's probably what we told them. Don't worry, nobody knows anything. I no. feel like I could do that now. I think I could do that frequently, <laughs> yeah. But it was an, I had an amazing time at Spectrum. I met Brent, my co-founder in lastminute.com, but also got to travel all over the place and see how different countries were progressing towards this kind of information Nirvana. One of my favourite projects was for British government, actually, I think, and we were benchmarking how far various countries had got in their internet infrastructure and information society infrastructure, if you like. And I was sent to Japan to meet with Mitsubishi, who were building this fibre ring around Tokyo. We got a presentation from Mitsubishi about this fibre ring, and um, 
five Japanese men in dark suits came into the room and I swear on my life they said, we will present to you our fibre optic network. We are presenting today the PENIS network. And I could see my boss's shoulders go like this, like start jumping. I was like, did I just hear that? Was that and, you know, everything in Japan has intent, right? So yes. every page they presented, they were like, the PENINS network will be. I was like, can this really be true? And we left the meeting, and to this day, I have no idea if they were just winding up the foreigners or whether that was the actual acronym. So does the penis network exist now? <laughs> I I, I, well, it definitely exists. We know that, right? But that's a different kind of network. That's, that's an that's interesting segue. That's exactly. <laughs> <laughs> definitely exists. We'll come back to that. Okay, we'll part the penis yeah. network. So when did you start last minute? Well, we, it was Brent's idea, and we were working together in Spectrum, and he started writing down a few notes on what he thought the product might look like, and then he asked me to come and help him actually write the business plan, the kind of back end of 97, so exactly 20 years ago, and we launched the website in 98. And was it like a rocket ship to just go off immediately? Well, it was a rocket ship in terms of excitement and media and suddenly feeling as though we were evangelizing about the way the world might become definitely seems strange to people listening in silicon valley but you know remember the uk is at least 100 years behind the west coast of america and so at that date we were probably 250 years behind and the internet hadn't really hit the uk not really amazon was just launching some tiny bits of e-commerce so people were sort of interested in lastminute.com but they were really interested in the idea that two young people who are sort of articulate would want to start a web business i mean that was weird so we got a lot of attention and that was extraordinary and that, in turn, did lead to the momentum building in the customer base. It did feel like something kind of zeitgeisty was being a bit unleashed, and we represented a sort of new wave of entrepreneurialism, of innovation, of all of the stuff that was also feeling like it was part of you know, the new Labour government coming into effect in the UK. London was being a bit reborn. So all these things were sort of converging. So there's a bit of a rocket ship happening culturally, I think, of which lastminute.com became a sort of totem pole for it. And I think the business did grow, but you know, it wasn't growing to hundreds of millions of customers. It was growing to a few hundred thousand to a million. And then you know, we went public and all of those things happened. Right. And so when, when did it go public? It went public in 2000, a week before the massive tech bubble crash. So you went public, and it was worth, what, a half a billion dollars, a billion billion pounds? A billion dollars. You were a unicorn way back in the day. We were way beyond a unicorn. We were a decacorn. It was, yeah, we were were a unicorn. There was a lot of excitement. Um, Should we have gone public? Very hard to say. I think about this a lot. I don't know what Brent would say. I think the impetus from the finance world to take you public, knowing that they could, and all of the things that, again, you'd be familiar with. And you were in your 20s and were like... I was 28, and Brent was just 30, whatever he was. So we were very young. It was hard to stand up to the inevitable pull of the financial markets. I will leave it at that. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, I remember that those days people were talking about the new business paradigm. Revenue wasn't that important. Profits certainly weren't. It was all about how many users or impressions you had or whatever. I mean, was there the financial scrutiny you might expect? Or was it just you were swept up in the mania and it was like, yeah, this is, yeah, you I mean, guys There are was financial scrutiny. And, you know, we did go public on the London Stock Exchange. Yeah. We went like, on some insane, dodgy Russian network somewhere. <laughs> so there was scrutiny, but it was definitely hopey, hopey changey as opposed to the reality. That was the, the time. That was the time. And it felt like things were suddenly very and very rapidly shifting in the direction of the travel we were taking as opposed to old industries. So showing any kind of momentum, showing any kind of ability to create a business model that was truly about technology, that was what was exciting. Yeah. Did you actually have a business then? Yes, we did. No, no. And I think the brilliance of Brent's idea, and I can say this because it was his idea, was that it, lastminute.com couldn't exist in the real world. And it did really fulfill a real need. It um, was a, effectively like a real-time marketplace for products that were left over and often unbranded we could sell them much much cheaper and they were very very high quality so we did deals with hundreds of five-star hotels around the world would never have discounted their products normally but we would just say you know secret location da, 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 da. and it was it was that was smart and that was fabulous and we got people going to stay in hotels on sunday nights for 99 quid we would never have gone to stay in a five-star hotel we got flights to new york for 99 quid which from london was quite something will use often in their daily lives but it was different and new then and it felt like we were unleashing both something that customers were really wanting but also the supply side as well so so you go public you're a unicorn yeah everything's great rah 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 i mean everything's great in terms the business is actually growing and the website works and we're getting more product but in terms of the noise and the media it was about a week of of kind of floating on air and then the market crashed our share price went we were meant to go public at £2.30. We got raised to £3.60. It went up to £5.35. And then we went down to about 19p. 5.35 to 19p in, what, in the space of like a couple of weeks? No, no, a few months, but pretty fast. And, it, you know, that's quite brutal. We had a few thousand people working around Europe, all of whom had no value in their shares at all. We were extremely high profile. It seems insane to suggest it now, but I would get recognized in the street and I was just some random dot-com entrepreneur. It was quite nuts. We were on the front pages of all the papers and then all of a sudden we were a pariah and we'd ripped off everybody and we had ruined the stock market and we were the ones that were evenly rubbing our hands while we'd taken millions out of them. You know, that was tough. But thank God... uh, the business was in pretty robust shape. So, so the business kept, kind of trundled on. We managed to trundle along and we kept the company together and we used our paper to buy companies to get to scale in countries and it grew. And you stayed till when? I left in 2000, early 2004. And then it was sold to Sabre for 580 million-ish yeah. Yeah. pounds. 
And then in 2014, it was sold again yeah. for like 75 million pounds. Yeah, I don't know the exact number, actually. I'm not... Something like yeah. that. So they, um, they did a good job. <laughs> and so you left, and then what did you go off and do? Fell out of a car. I have survived a real-world crash and a dot-com crash. Yeah. Um, I was going off because I thought, you know, I'm 31 and I want to try and do something different. I didn't want lastminute.com to be the thing that defined me in my life. And it didn't need me in the same way. You know, I like starting things. I'm not a big yeah. corporate person. Um, so that was the right moment. But literally six weeks later when I was on a holiday, I came out of a car. In, in Morocco? Yes. Broke 28 bones, had a stroke, spent two years in hospital. So that kind of put a spanner in the works of pretty much everything. Two years in the hospital. I imagine that changes your perspective. Yeah, it's funny. It's quite hard to be objective about what it changes and doesn't when it's so daily still. And yeah. I'm asking for sympathy, but it's, you know, it doesn't go, it continues. Yeah. So I feel as though, well, I hope, you'd have to ask my friends or my family, that what it did was reinforce what I knew is important as opposed to making me go, oh my God, friends and family are important. I think I'd always thought they were pretty important. And it turns out they are. Uh, I would quite definitely be dead if I hadn't had the incredible support of my partner Chris, my mum in particular who's astonishing, I don't think you expect your 31 year old daughter to go back to being like a baby again and my friends who formed a kind of round the clock vigilante service to make sure I was either never alone in hospital or if I was I always had a movie to watch on the ceiling because I couldn't sit up. So they had like a projector shooting straight up. Yeah, my friends brought in a projector That's pretty amazing. It was pretty cool and it continues now so hat tip Thanks, team. Yeah. <laughs> and so now you have, you're wearing several hats. You're doing lots of different stuff. Yeah. The most kind of tangible career thing that happened post-accident is apart from the fact it took me a while to get my brain even vaguely back. It has meant that I'm unable really to be physically consistent enough to do one nine-to-five or nine-to-midnight job. Uh, and so I had to build a sort of portfolio career at... 35, which I didn't think I'd build till I was 85. It's meant that I've had the opportunity to spread across lots of things. Started a new business, Lucky Voice, my karaoke joint. I then went on some boards in the UK, Channel 4, The Broadcaster, and then Marks & Spencer, the retailer, which I enjoyed, and then did some smaller boards, charitable boards, the Women's Prize for Fiction, a big reading prize here in the UK. I've been on the board of the Open Data Institute, I was on the board of something called the Creative Industry Federation, so lots of different things. But the thing that I feel most uh, energised by, which is sort of theme from the last sort of 10 years, really, is about social justice around the internet, I guess, having always worked in the digital economy, if you like, through lastminute.com and in my consulting life, it seemed to me that digital society is just as important, or how you organize society in these digital Well, it's, I mean, you don't even need to call it digital no, society anymore, right? It's just society. society. It is. We have been quite active in building the digital economy, you know, supporting startups, funding new ideas, all that stuff. I think we need to be as active to make sure society is robust in these modern times, if you like. So I have done some interesting things around that. I was asked by the Prime Minister Gordon Brown to look at the digital divide in the UK and that kind of spurred a mission to think about how to empower people in the most difficult of circumstances with the internet. I then got involved in setting up the government digital service here in the UK and we created gov.uk to show that government can do tech well. That's pretty uh, impactful on many, many lives. So I loved all that. And now I started a small think tank where we are today, Dot Everyone, and we are doing projects to 
try and make sure that the internet is a fair and inclusive place. That's a big job. Yeah. I saw you gave a speech in the House of Lords recently where you talked about the need for a quote-unquote Geneva Convention, but for the internet. Yeah, a few people have talked about that um, globally, and, you know, that might not be the, quite the right analogy. Yeah, because Geneva Convention is for wartime, which leads to the question. Are we in a war? Who knows? Is there the possibility for tech to do you harm? Yeah. So do we need to protect against that? Yeah, I think we probably do, both if you're very vulnerable or if you're a child or, you know, there may be a bunch of axes through which you can see that. I am an optimist, you know, I'm not the kind of dystopian pessimist, but I'm also a realist, and I think that human beings are part of a solution, actual, and that may be partly a coded solution, but I think that it's a combo notion of skills and systems thinking that's really important, and we can't just let it all be sorted out by technology. But this is the whole thing, right, is that this idea that we can code our way out of everything. This seems to have gotten us where we are today as we're seeing today in Congress, et cetera, that's not true. That's not true. No, and I would argue that is a quite myopic view of the world anyway. That comes from a very small group of people. We still haven't deployed good technology to help solve some of the biggest social problems that we have. You know, if you look at the charitable sector here in the UK, I'm not saying that the internet is the answer to solve poverty, to make sure kids don't get into trouble with the law, to make sure the police don't bleat up, beat up black people. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about being aware that technology can help you come to better decisions or just provide better tools. I mean, it seems like a very obvious way of putting it, but sometimes I think that gets lost. It's part of the answer. And being able to understand technology, I think, allows you as a, you know, somebody who's interested in the world and engaged in society to make better decisions about your own life or nationally or societally. And that's the bit that I think is still missing. You know, if I look at the policy world that I see from either being in the Lords or working in government, too often people who have huge amounts of power, whether it's a big ministerial brief or whether it's a big um, civil service brief, aren't deploying the smartest thinking about how to use technology. And that doesn't mean they're coding the answer. It just means using the tools that we have available for 1817 or 2017 as opposed to 1817, (laughs) which our civil service was at its peak in. Right. Actually, in this building where we are now in Somerset House. Sexism in tech. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. (laughs) Love it. Um, But it's been quite an interesting year. It's been an interesting year to come back to Silicon Valley and see all of this start to come out of the woodwork. Were you surprised? I am surprised that an industry that did not exist 30 years ago has managed to so entirely replicate the power structures of every single previous industry that has ever been invented so quickly. You know, it did not feel like that in 97, 98. It felt as though anyone was going to be able to start a business, that some of these old hierarchies were going to be a bit blown apart. And they really haven't been. In fact, arguably, they've got worse because the power, concentration of power is so small. And because, you know, even if it's a bit of an MLF made-up number and it's times two wrong, it's not times ten wrong, 96% of software engineers are men. And as anybody knows who runs any kind of business, they're the ones with all the power. They hold the future of your business in their hands. 96%. They can make it. Yeah, I mean, even if, it's, even if I'm wrong by a yeah. margin of error of something, yeah. it's still massive, right? There are more women in, women in the House of Lords, a 500-year-old institution, than there are in the tech sector. Brilliant. 
absolutely on the borders of acceptability. Yes, I've had the sexism myself, you know, never very fortunately been in any way physically abused, you know, it's a separate category of hideousness, but have I witnessed things? Have I, you know, had inappropriate things said to me all the time? You know, the first question that a VC in London asked me and Brent when we went to present our business plan back in 97, 98, we had rehearsed every single answer to every single question. The one question he asked was, what happens if she gets pregnant? Looking at uh, Brent. Asking him when yes. you're sitting right there. Yes. The difference, you know, it's hard for me because I don't really know the US that well and I don't want to pontificate about it. What I feel the difference is, is that, you know, the British establishment is quite something. I know the Silicon Valley network is quite something and it, arguably it's much more powerful, but the British establishment is pretty powerful. And tech to me is like a subsection of that. You know, I don't perceive any particular difference in the sexism I've seen in the UK tech sector from the classic British establishment sexism, you know. It happens in Parliament, it happens in finance, it happens in the world. And so I see it as all part of the same thing. And the culture is shifting, but not quickly enough. But it feels to me as though there is a moment happening right now where it's going from, oh, just shut up and get on with it, to being a bit more acceptable to share your story, however on the spectrum that story might be. Yeah, Harvey Weinstein has yeah, brought out has a lot of this, a which is extraordinary that it this one story has resonated so much. Yeah, but I think some of the Uber stuff in terms of tech did open that up too. And, but it's got to, I obviously am going to say that stuff, it's got to come from men. Any man that ever says to me, oh, but there are no women, just look harder. The problems now seem more clear than ever. Lack of diversity. How do you start kind of chipping away at that? Are there some easy wins? Yeah, there are some easy wins, I think, but it's just, you have to also have a systems approach. You know, I think government has its place to part, role to play, sorry, in the education system, but it's, education isn't the answer, and it's the lazy answer, I think. Some people who think, oh, well, we can't do anything about it because we've got to get back into schools. You can always do something about it. You know, if you're in a VC firm and you're looking around and you've only got male partners, why? Where are you recruiting from? Are there really no brilliant women in any kind of tangential industry that you could bring into your own train up? It's not like finance has got to be full of people that only know finance. So I just think pushing on all of your normal, how you've normalised your thinking about how to crack these problems is really important. And then, you know, it's classic stuff. And we're only, I think, beginning to understand a bit more about the psychology of some of these things. Are you worried about screen time? My own. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've got you've got eighteen-month-old babies. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, they're not really ever near a screen, actually. But it's not because I am. They will be though. No, no, they absolutely will be. But it's quite interesting watching through them. I think. It's the screen time, possibly, but it's more about what they're doing. You know, I think, to me, I remember I had the, well, this year, actually, I was lucky enough to spend some time with Sugatra Mitra, who did the famous test in a D- Delhi slum, where he put a computer connected to the internet just in a wall. And he watched... In a kids, wall in the slum. Very famous experiment. And he watched how kids used it. And without any any instruction at all they managed to navigate their way onto the internet and start to build things together and he's done loads of work now all over the world in whether that was a random thing about that particular slum it turns out that if you give kids particularly technology in a shared space so in public not in private where they work on something together then they generally start to build and create things you know i want my children not to have access to technology i think it's got wonderful and amazing things i will try and do it in a shared space in a public way as a family as opposed to going off privately in their bedrooms and scurrying right. away till midnight, 
Because well, there are all these studies now coming out that, you know, Instagram, etc., making kids yeah, depressed. Yeah. They go out less. It makes me social. depressed. Of course it makes them. I mean, of course <laughs> it does, and their brains are developing. Yeah. So I think yeah, this is really important, and some interesting stuff going on in the House of Lords right now. There's my my friend, uh, Baroness Kidron, who's been working a lot on this issue, and she's campaigning for, um, you know, designing for kids. So you have a kind of different front end when you know it's a kid that's on your platform, and that has different privacy settings, and it has maybe different timings on it. And I think that stuff's all really sensible. You want them to have exposure to the good content, but maybe not yet in the way where they don't know how to contain it themselves. And I support all those things. What was your worst day of work? <laughs> You know, the things that, when you said that, what immediately popped into my head were two things, one which will make you laugh and one which wasn't very funny. You know, I, after the last minute.com IPO, I got um, a massive amount of personal flack in the media and I got a huge amount of handwritten letters from people. Bitch was the friendliest of those letters because I became this symbol of everything that had gone wrong with people believing that they were going to make a lot of money in this sector and then they didn't. So I got, you know, the Daily Mail angry reader writing to me saying, you stole my £135, give it back, you bitch. And it was hard to take. And I was very young and all of that stuff. What, they bought shares? Oh, right, right. And they wrote to me directly because I was the face. And, you know, I set myself up for that, I guess. But I now look back and that was sort of naive. So I had some pretty brutal days where it felt like I couldn't contain that, feeling anxious about that with helping motivate a company to keep delivering. And Brent was always fabulous in that stuff. So that was, there were some pretty bad dark days around then, you know, we came out of it. Um, when I was in my first job, my probably worst day at work was when I was asked to put a list together of car magazines because the thesis was that, you know, specialist interest magazines might point to what specialist interest cable channels could be. And one of the theories was, you know, massive number of people read car magazines, so therefore... So I, p- I put together a list of car magazines, the top of which, which we presented to the client, was Fiesta. Fiesta is not a car magazine. <laughs> it's a porn magazine. Uh, oh. Which the client knew and I had missed. I knew, but that was pretty bad. I was in quite a lot of trouble. So we went how, hard how, on... How, do, how, do you, how did you kind of make that error... I just was dumb. I didn't copy check my work enough. <laughs> but since then, I don't know if I've had really bad ones. I've had times where I've just thought, this is such a gargantuan task I've set myself. So I yeah. set myself the stupid target, which obviously I failed in to try and help everybody in the UK use the internet by 2012. Well, that, that's what's that, interesting that also. Happen. <laughs> and I, you know, again, no one died. And it was, you know, I'm older, so it's less robust. But I had some pretty bleak days when I'd meet people. And I just felt so kind of worn down by how hideous people's lives were and how little was being done to help them. And, you know, anybody that works at the sharp end of frontline services would feel that all the time, and I'm lucky that I bounce in and out of it, and I don't live with it all the time, but it's quite easy to go to some bits of the UK and feel like, Jesus Christ, we just we haven't even begun to address people's problems. Yeah, and that idea of kind of dot everyone, it's about social justice and fairness on the Internet. I mean, again, that's a big task to take on because well, we're through some very specific projects. So the first two things, big things we're doing right, three things we're doing right now are we're doing some deep research that we'll repeat regularly about how people feel about all this stuff because there's lots of research about how long people use their phones for, but not necessarily how they feel about the different things, the different dynamics. We've learned some pretty interesting things already. You know, quite often people don't really feel much; they just use them because they're really convenient and really helpful. So get this: we've there's a woman, it's anecdotal, but still kind of feels a bit like it's a metaphor for the tech sector right now. A woman who got punched in the face by an Uber driver, but still continues to use Uber every single week. 
There's a metaphor. There There's is, a... yes. We'll part that for a minute. So that's one project we're doing, which I think will yield some really interesting findings. And the second thing we're doing is, what does responsible technology look like? What might a trademark for that be? What does kind of, how can we learn from what Fairtrade did with food and with clothing to think about what prompts you as a user or a customer or a citizen might want? So when you're logging on, there'd be like a little logo that says, Possibly, that might be one trust in- this. Yeah, that might be one right. incarnation of Because it. I think one of the interesting things is going back to, you know, the kind of the superpowers of the internet. They've created these platforms they've grown beyond all control and now they say it's impossible to control them which i find hard to believe it would be interesting i don't know how you would come up with that label but this idea that facebook says oh you know we just this is just a really hard problem sorry and some are, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't be trying to solve it. These things are often just about movements and getting a kind of sea of change, right? So for as much as Facebook might not want to engage with some of the things we think they should engage with, there might be a whole bunch of stuff. In fact, there are a bunch of startups who do want to embed right from the get-go. You know, I'm confident that even if the handful of really powerful companies might not want to shift immediately, actually there might be a wave of challenges, smaller companies, that doesn't mean you can't provide a pretty powerful movement from the, the other end of the spectrum. Right. And so I you're going to try to start a fair trade movement for the internet? Kinda. Yeah, kind of. I mean, that might not be quite the right language, but we're sort of working on some of those things. We've got a first cohort of designers and companies and organizations who've come together to start prototyping and building what some of this stuff might look like. Even if all it means is that you come up with a set of open source principles that people can use or a set of things that if you're worried about as a, you're starting a business or you're running a business, can I tick some of these boxes and look at what I might be thinking about in terms of ethics? That would be great. I just think you need to keep challenging and championing these things. And my own personal view is just because it's hard, you shouldn't yeah. mean you shouldn't try doing it. Or are there certain kind of central tenets that you would you would look to include in some well, kind I think, of criteria. I mean, one of the things we talk a lot about at Dot Everyone is uh, designing for the furthest first. So we did some work in end of life care in the UK, and you know, my team were like, "Why have you made us do work with people who are dying?" But the part of the point was to show that if you can improve people's lives using smart technology when they're dying, pretty much the most hideous experience that you will ever have, <laughs> final and hideous, and for the people around them particularly, then they're in a way like the most difficult to reach, then if you row back from that for the sort of the mainstream of people, that technology will be good too. So that kind of furthest first principle, I think, is quite important. But there's also a bunch of stuff, obviously, around trusting that the company is making it as easy as possible to understand about what that transaction you're making with them is, whether that's an actual commercial transaction or a data transaction. Yeah, you have so the what, what data you're yeah, allowing. Exactly, of course. Yep. Big company X yeah. to do what, yeah. use and for what, yep. et cetera. Absolutely. And around that, some stuff with privacy. And then some more kind of stuff to do with the actual business that, or the organization that sh- you're engaging with. So, you know, what are their working practices? Would that also be showing people what it is that they are yes. supporting? Yes. Because if absolutely. you think about, what you know, what you- Amazon pays warehouse workers and or what Uber drivers truly get or don't get. Yeah. Yep transparency is pretty fundamental to all of this stuff isn't it and I do think that even though you know arguably the fair trade movement has only shifted consumer behavior habits a little bit it those early adopters who did challenge and champion have moved mainstream retail for it to be marginally less acceptable to screw over the supply chain and I think the same is possible in technology so it's exciting to be at the vanguard of imagining what it might look like I have one more question and then I'll let you go Everywhere you go, you hear about, oh, we're trying to create Silicon Valley and pick your... Please, no. No. 
we don't all want to wear black and drink juices. <laughs> kale, kale, lots kale, of kale. Sorry, yes. How's London doing, and what do you think the prospects uh, are here? Yes, um, it's kind of extraordinary to me because you could count on one hand the organisations that even had money to invest in tech startups 20 years ago, and now there is really a lot more money sloshing around in London and there's you know it's crazy stats a startup every hour is created in this city so that's really exciting there is definitely a different energy I hope we're not trying to create Silicon Valley I think we're trying to do it in a different way I hope we're also trying to build centers of excellence in other cities around the country because if Brexit shows one thing about this country it's that we've got to try and spread knowledge uh, wealth you know inclusion at its in its broadest sense so I think that there is more energy and money coming into technology than there ever has been before. I'm dubious about whether we will create a big platform business that will be able to take on a Silicon Valley company. doesn't mean those aren't going to be some really interesting businesses created and you, know, you can already see some beginning to scale. It feels good, but I don't think it's Silicon Valley that I would personally be shooting for and that I see us recreating. And I just add one thing to that because it feels like the tech sector has done a good job at organizing itself and being noisy and lobbying and getting attention on it all admirably. But I also think it's worth challenging the sector to think about what it can do for the country. Post-Brexit, I was a bit uh, depressed by the kind of demands that came out of the tech sector. We must make sure we have free movement of peoples to fuel our sector. We must make sure we have access to the digital single market, blah, blah, blah. And I just thought, okay, but how about thinking about what you can do for our country? Because Surely, again, as I said, Brexit has shown that we have got this two-tier level of understanding about what a bunch of people are feeling in our country. The actual connections seem to have broken down. So the industry that is about connecting should, I think, reflect on not just what the country can do for it, but what it can do for the country. Practically, what, do you, what does that mean? Well, it could be a whole bunch of stuff. It could be about thinking that it isn't just supporting London, but it's about being out there supporting different bits of the country. It could be about how are we making sure that we've got a social purpose that's embedded beyond whatever product we're creating. Are we really thinking about you know, giving access to people in more vulnerable communities? Are we thinking about skills and training and all the other things that, you know, will build a much more robust economy for the UK post-Brexit? You know, we've got a, we've got, we're in a challenging place in this country right now. Massive productivity issues. I believe the economy will slow. I think Brexit is cataclysmically bad for us generally. And I think the tech sector can help with some of those problems. Yeah. And... Do you really want to? Turn so it wasn't your last question. I, this is this is my last one. This is a softy. Fake uh, news. <laughs> do you really want to turn Houses of Parliament to a museum? Um, I think the Houses of Parliament are a really tough environment to work in. You know. Or is it drafty? It's not drafty. <laughs> I like draft. No, it's not that. It's just that you know I would argue that Parliament should be open and transparent and should be about the best of our representing what we want our modern democracy to look like. That building does not do that. It's impressive, it's kind of fun to visit, but it doesn't really function well as a place to work. It is about nooks and corners and about, you know, harking back to something that I don't think Britain in 2017 is, uh, much as I uh, know that around the world the pomp and circumstance of our country is much revered. It does not reflect to me what I see as the most positive aspects of Britain, which are about multicultural life, about embracing innovation and showing how citizen and state can work more closely together. 
So what we need is a big like glass cube. Yeah. Well, the Scottish Parliament is a great example of that, but it's never going to happen. It costs a lot of money. It's incredibly unpopular with the public. Why would people ever want to see that particular change happen? But I think it will be good. And that is all the time we have. A big thank you to Martha. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. And if you did, let the world know. Stop by Apple Podcasts, give a rating and review. It really does help with the ratings. So if you do that, I would be most appreciative. Uh, And of course, you can also find my stuff in the Sunday Times online at thetimes.co.uk and on Twitter at Danny Fortson. Until next week. I bid you adieu. Bye-bye. The train is now approaching. Junction at platform. Passengers, airport, please stay on board. Next stop, road station. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.